Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people. And you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Welcome back to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined, as always, by the great Dan Feinberg, THR's chief TV critic. Dan, what's shaking, man? Just another tumultuous week in the world, Leslie. Well, yeah, and in media, Kevin Mayer stepped down as CEO of TikTok after three months uh, after leaving Disney for the job. Uh, There's been another police shooting, too. The NBA, Major League Sports are protesting continued violence. Games have been postponed. Just it's, you know, what was that Natasha Leone tweet from a couple of weeks ago? What's next? Because, yeah, 2020, man. I hadn't realized Natasha Leone had a copyright on wondering what was next. I just thought she said it really well, and it really (laughs) spoke to me and continues to speak to me. So anyway, yeah. Well, let's dive into this week's headlines. What do you say? Absolutely. Aaron Sorkin and the cast of The West Wing will reunite for the first time in 17 years for a theatrical stage presentation of an episode designed to support Michelle Obama's nonpartisan group We All Vote. The special will stream at a date to be determined in the fall on HBO Max. No friends reunion, no problem, said, well, HBO Max. Elsewhere, the Tiger King drama series starring Kate McKinnon has found a home, well, three of them, actually, as part of NBC Universal's new programming strategy. The eight episode Joe Exotic limited series will air across NBC, streamer Peacock and basic cable network USA. Favorite TV's top five guest Robin Thede has signed an overall deal with Warner Brothers TV, while Justin Lin has moved his overall TV deal from Apple to Universal as part of a sweeping pack that also includes feature films. Over in development news, the CW is readying a live action update of former Cartoon Network animated favorite The Powerpuff Girls with Greg Berlanti and Diablo Cody attached to exec produce the potential series that reimagines the heroes as young adults. In other development news, Westworld creators and Robert Downey Jr. are teaming to adapt Michael Crichton's novel and subsequent 1998 feature, Sphere, as an HBO drama series. Netflix is teaming with Supernatural co-showrunner Andrew Dabb for a Resident Evil TV series. In syndication news, repeats of Young Sheldon have been sold to Viacom CBS with a Big Bang Theory prequel spinoff airing on Nick at Night starting in November in just the latest deal for Chuck Lorre. Kira Knightley will star in an Apple limited series based on Sarah Perry's award winning novel, The Essex Serpent. And in cancellation news, Netflix has axed Altered Carbon after two seasons, while Showtime has pulled the plug on Penny Dreadful a second time. And speaking of cancellations, Dan, this is what's called a transition. It takes us to our first topic this week. Number one. 
Leading off this week, the impact of the pandemic has started to really affect which shows are actually going to move forward. Netflix reversed renewals for The Society, and I am not okay with this, citing issues brought on by the pandemic. True TV's I'm Sorry from Andrea Savage also had its third season renewal reversed. So, Leslie, tell the kids why this is happening. So, unrenewals is the latest trend, you know, and as Netflix said in their statement about The Society and I am not okay with this, it is because of the pandemic on these. Um, it wasn't on altered carbon for what it's worth. And it's because of two basic things, three possibly. First of all, rising costs associated with the new safety protocols for filming during the pandemic. As, as we've said and, and been saying for the last few months, and as I've been writing, it feels like almost daily, the cost of doing a scripted show during the pandemic is rising because the safety protocols add time to the production. So whereas some shows were doing, you know, eight or 12 hour days, that's all being extended because you can only have a certain number of people in, in one space at a certain time. Transpo takes longer because the vans are half full, et cetera. I mean, these are just a couple of, of the things. Uh, one of the Goldberg stars actually did a great tour via her TikTok site. Is TikTok a site? I don't know. One of the stars of the Goldbergs actually gave a great tour of what filming that show is like during the pandemic on her TikTok account. And it's, I mean, it's eye-opening to say the least. Everything takes longer. You have to do your own makeup. Everything is social distance, you know, where, you know, like it's extensive. So the turnaround time for scripted, it, it takes, takes a toll. The amount of money you have to spend keeping everybody around much longer, the, the, it all, it all adds up. The second piece of this is scheduling. So it's not only with the casts and the showrunners, but with production space. As you, you, you know, we've talked for what, almost two years on this show now, we are in the peak TV world. There are 500 plus scripted shows. That means that that sound stages and locations are at a premium in a normal situation. Well, when you have everything shut down at the same time and everything trying to get back up at once, it's physically impossible to, to secure filming locations for everything that wants to go. So things are going to have to get pushed around. Then you've got actor schedules to deal with. And, you know, because of the peak TV world and because of, you know, people wanting to work, you have, you know, guys like Milo Ventimiglia, for example, who, who signed on to star in a miniseries for USA Network that he was supposed to shoot during his hiatus from This Is Us. That show got scrapped because the, the window closed. So, the, the scheduling is a mess for actors. The same is true for showrunners. You know, we talked about the Joe Exotic show uh, with Kate McKinnon now having a network and or three networks. Well, the writer on that was the same writer on Evil. So he his window to do that show moved on too. so USA passed on the show, which was, I think was really the first one to really be to be dropped because of pandemic related issues. So but yeah, this is. The, you know, we this is the first of the oh, this wave of, of unrenewals. Um, you know, we talked in the last couple of weeks about what Comedy Central is doing. They canceled Tosh.0 and Drunk History. And a lot of that is because of a shift in Comedy Central's programming strategy. But at the same time, you know, I, I can't imagine that Tosh.0 is an expensive show to make. You've got one guy standing there showing a bunch of videos and then the production crew. It's it's not an expensive show to make. It doesn't require an elaborate production. But so that one I don't think was canceled because of issues related to the pandemic. Drunk History, on the other hand, I think is, is would probably qualify as part of that because it was expensive. You have elaborate sets and costumes that are required. It's a quick turnaround. It's an expensive show to make. 
And they were already in production pre-pandemic. And then, of course, Comedy Central changed direction. So I think that one was a, a, a confluence of, of uh, issues here. So, yeah, this is just the, the tip of the iceberg, I fear. <sighs> I'm definitely disappointed about the Netflix renewals. And, uh, you know, I look, I can't tell Netflix to spend money they don't want to spend and to deal with logistics they don't want to deal with. Uh, and. You know, they they do what they do regarding their audience and what they feel like they owe their audience. But those are two shows that are particularly, particularly serialized, particularly mythology driven, and that did not get anywhere particularly near the answers and purposes of their respective shows. And that to me is it, it's not good for audience maintenance. Just as simple as that. If you have a show like I Am Not Okay With This, where the point they reached at the finale of the already short first season, some shows could have gotten there really in 45 minutes. That that could have been the pilot to the series. And instead, it was a long buildup and everyone got to the finale and everyone was like, okay, there, that's the show I'm looking forward to watching. Let's see where it goes. Now it's never going to. Uh, the Society was a show that I personally enjoyed for the Lord of the Flies dynamic of it. And that was what it was. And I thought that was very good. But there were definitely people out there who kind of wanted answers for what the heck was happening in this world in which everyone disappeared. But this group of high school students. Well, the finale of that show hinted at a very big twist and at, you know, alternate dimensions or who the heck knows what. And now we're never going to get the answer on that. So if you're Netflix, you basically made your audience waste 18 episodes of television of building up to shows that never actually got to their point. And that's not a good way to maintain audience loyalty, unfortunately. But again, if the costs are what they are, they are what they are. You know, the society was a show with a large ensemble cast and the, the sort of defining sh scenes of that show were groups of high school students by the twenties or thirties in large rooms yelling at each other. Well, you know, in, 2020, you can't shoot those scenes the same way anymore. And so if Netflix or at all or at all. And so if Netflix determined that there was no way that they could do it in a reasonable and affordable and logical way, then that's what they decided. But these these are two shows, though, that absolutely left their audiences hanging. And that's that's not nice, darn it. <laughs> Yeah. And at the same time, we're, we're talking about Netflix and their annual content spend is what, $12 billion? I mean, I've lost track because it, it just continues to, to inch up every single year. But if this is a company that is spending that kind of money on original content and they're saying it's too expensive for us to do this, that's alarming. This is, I mean, I get, you know, the on the creative, it's frustrating to invest in a show and see the see it canceled prematurely while well, broadcast networks have been doing that for how long and cable network. I mean, it's, it's common practice. Netflix just isn't in that business. They, they opt to let these shows end and, and, and write them out because maintaining subscriber, uh, keeping their subscribers happy and paying is a priority to them. But when you have this company that's, that spends what they spend to save shows and to, to, you know, like Lucifer's coming back for how many more seasons, you know, like, it, it to me that it's eye opening when you have a company with that kind of a budget 
saying we can't do this. And yeah, part of it is the realities that filming crowd scenes is going to be impossible and maybe scheduling for the show was was difficult, but the, the entire season was already written and they still pulled the plug. So that should just tell you they've already spent a, an extensive amount on the scripts and paying people and then to, to cut it off now is basically they had to have sit there and, and weighed, does the cost... Is the cost of producing another season of the show actually now looking at what the price tag on, on it is versus last year when they actually renewed it, it, is that still worth it? Because that's how Netflix determines what, what shows live and die, right? If it if the investing the money in another season will continue to bring in new subscribers or if it won't. I mean, there's other factors, but that's the gist of it. So it, that that to me is the biggest eye-opening part of, of this whole un, you know unrenewed trend and you know, as for I'm sorry, you should definitely go uh, on Twitter and look at uh, creator Andrea Savage's video thread uh, in response to the decision. And, you know, that I think was, you know, they, they had already started production on that as well, um, pulled it midway through and 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 tore it apart. And, and now it's, you know, you have this is a, a show that was airing on True TV, which is owned by Warner Media. All of those networks and and you know, are in the midst of being, well, they're trying to figure out what their strategy is because, you know, as we said in the last couple couple weeks, Bob Greenblatt, Kevin Riley, both gone. Riley had been overseeing all of that content. He picked up, he took over that network from Chris Lynn a few years ago. This is, I don't think that they have a dedicated executive now. I think this is now being folded under Casey Bloys's department or Casey Bloys's purview. And what is the head of HBO going to care about? True TV. You know, like that's got to be so far down on his on his list. But at the same time, you've got belt tightening going on across the landscape and, and especially at Warner Media. So, yeah, it's the it's the belt. It's the belt tightening, because obviously these things that are largely under the radar of the network, you know, they, as a rule, they tend to skate a little bit. And I think that if you look at the budget of I'm sorry, or if you look at the budget of or even the society or I'm not OK with this, probably all three shows are on the low side of what a scripted show on television can cost. And yet everyone is trying to figure out how to stay afloat on any level at all. And I think that probably things that were allowed to skate for an extra season or two or whatever before, it's just not financially feasible at this point. And so. You know, it's a it's a sea, it's the latest sea change in a series of sea changes. Absolutely. And uh, speaking of of sea changes, that takes us to our next topic, Dan. Number two. Broadcast networks, of course, are facing what was supposed to be and what under normal circumstances would be the build up to the fall TV season. That is the thing that happens every year in late August and beginning of September. You start getting all the trailers for the new shows and everyone's getting excited and everyone's got premiere dates and it's all exciting. And now everything is upside down. So, of course, in May, all of the broadcast networks announced various forms of schedules. And yet in the past couple days, several of the networks have, I don't want to say entirely upended those schedules that they announced to the good advertisers at Upfronts, but they've definitely clarified how things are actually going to take place next month. So we have new scheduling details from, and stop me if I'm wrong here, CBS, NBC, and ABC that have come out in the past two days. Where do you want to start, Leslie? Um, I, I don't honestly don't know, man. You know, this is, I've written all three stories and, you know, have talked to people at, at every network and it's 
confusing to say the least. You know, um, I get, you know, when you have an upfront presentation and you have commitments that you need to make and a presentation you have to make to add buyers, which is where all of their business is dedicated to. So you need to put out a schedule in, in May and, in, and as late as June and say, here's what we're going to do. Fox and the CW came out and said, there's a lot of uncertainty here with COVID. We don't know when things are going to work, but we're going to give everyone extra time and, and our schedules are going to be filled with, you know, what's come to be known as, as gently used programming, which is content that's aired on other platforms and streaming services or um, that hasn't really been aired on broadcast, right? So you've got content from CBS All Access and DC Universe, as well as acquired content, which is stuff from like, like Canadian imports. And now you've got CBS saying, which in May said, we're going to have a business as usual schedule. We just don't know when in the fall we're going to launch it. And now they're coming out and saying, we don't know when scripted is going to come back. We're hoping it's November, but in the interim, here's a bunch of, uns here's our unscripted return. And by the way, we're also adding season one of Star Trek Discovery from CBS All Access, which will air three weeks before season three of Discovery takes off on All Access. Then we're also going to pick up Manhunt from Spectrum. If, if there's a winner in all of this craziness, it's Spectrum because they've had two shows picked up on broadcast networks. Fox is airing LA's finest in the interim, right? These are the stop gaps. CBS will also air the truncated fourth season of One Day at a Time. That's six episodes, not including the animated special. Um, that show was cut down halfway through production. It, from everything that I understand, it is not going to go back into production to, to film those remaining episodes that were cut off by the pandemic. And, you know, there's no date on, on, on when those, those scripted shows are going to return. They haven't scheduled them. The hope is November. Then you've got ABC, which, you know, they haven't really released their traditional schedule. They released a bunch of premiere dates for unscripted shows, Dancing with the Stars, The Bachelorette, et cetera. And the hope, again, is that some scripted will begin air, arriving in late October and, the, and most, most of them in November. But on Thursdays, their plan is all game shows. So no Grey's Anatomy, no Station 19, no A Million Little Things, because we don't know when those are going to be back. Then you've got NBC. And by the way, ABC still needs to announce whatever is going to air on Wednesdays, which is normally their comedy block. We don't know. They haven't announced any plans of, of scripted yet. Then in, in NBC, just in as we're recording this, they have said we're going to basically stagger our rollout, which is a, the strategy that that Carrie Burke said that ABC was going to do. Right. Yes, I realize we're I'm talking I'm quoting Carrie Burke uh, about her ABC strategy versus NBC, which currently has no executive overseeing the network. So, yeah, what could go wrong? Anyway, um, you know, it, it's an interesting strategy. NBC has said a lot of our scripted shows are going to start coming back in October with the majority of them, including This Is Us, in the second week of November. And they're kind of marketing it as a November to remember. So what does all this mean? It means you're going to have new episodes of all the Dick Wolf shows on NBC. This Is Us, Superstore will be back. You've got the, the Martin Giro uh, Connecting show, which is the social distance uh, scripted sh series that he's launching. That's coming in, in October. The Voice is back in October. So what does this mean in the grand scheme of things? Well, new episodes, if they can figure it out and everyone remains safe and the world doesn't continue to blow up. What it also means is that the, the traditional premiere week, which is the third week of September, is probably not what you're going to expect. It is definitely not what you're going to expect, actually. So you've got a lot of unscripted shows, you know, kind of holding over. And if there is a takeaway from what the broadcast networks have been able to do, it's 
they have figured out how to film an unscripted show where things like American Ninja Warrior are being filmed in a domed stadium and, and everyone is kind of being in a quarantine. It's kind of the Tyler Perry model of doing uh, of of doing production. Tyler Perry's been able to do it on scripted shows because he's got this this huge campus in Atlanta where he can quarantine an entire cast and, you know, because of their their structure, they can film an entire season of like something like 20 something episodes in just a few weeks. It's it's insane. That is not something that the broadcast networks can do. You can't shoot SVU or This Is Us or Grey's Anatomy in that in that style. You know, so what it means is that marketing the return of fall TV is going to be a mess. It also means that maybe some of these shows will, will, will launch in November. Maybe they take some time off for it for Thanksgiving and, and Christmas. I mean, these are periods of time when the networks traditionally go to repeats because people are out shopping or with their families. Who knows what that's going to even look like? We're in late August now, and I can't even think that the thought of going Christmas shopping just gives me endless stress. So, Who's got the right strategy here? Does anyone have a have a, a larger strategy here? I, I don't know. I think it's, you know, look, getting these scripted shows back on the air is and will be a feat. So maybe there will be an appetite in November. Maybe they'll air straight through and no repeats because it, it is truly a, a thing to celebrate the return of these shows. And we will all be starved for new content. Maybe, you know, this is a time when they say, you know, well, People are laying down or we don't want to watch the same Christmas movies we watch every year. Here, here's a new episode of Grey's Anatomy. I don't know. But one thing that I do think is interesting is that Fox and the CW strategy from day one has said they have both said we're going to wait until 2021 new year. That's when it's going to return. We're not going to try and rush this all process. I don't know. So you've got a couple of different strategies at play here. NBC, you know, at, at, at least from where I sit, has the best vantage point because they can start marketing the return of those flagship shows right now. They have said this is the date when This Is Us is back. This is the date when SVU is back. They're far out from everyone else, if you ask me. I think everyone who I think the I think the networks who have, for example, the NFL will have an advantage if the NFL actually comes back. Uh, I'm totally an if it we as of now, we assume it will until it doesn't, which I guess is actually the opposite of what we said for all those months uh, when baseball wasn't back yet. You know, sort of the assumption that it really is never going to come back until it does. I mean, you know, no one is more surprised that we made it halfway through the baseball season than I am. This is true. So so, yeah, I think the, you know, certain networks that have those couple flagship things that they can actually put on are going to have big advantages. If if Fox can do Masked Singer successfully, that's a big advantage because it's a show. It's got that, Mask in the name. It is mask right, is in the name. Dan. It is right there. So so, you know, we're going to we're going to see it is as you say, it is not going to look anything like what we think the fall TV season looks like. And maybe there will be an advantage when we get towards the beginning of next year, when the periods that would normally be doldrums are suddenly full of hypothetical, imaginary, original programming. But honestly, I'm going to believe so many things when I see them. Uh, I Let's just cross our fingers and hope that everyone does the things they need to do safely. Yeah. But also, do you do you market and say, this is us? 
back to this date in November, do you put those billboards up with a date on it and then run the risk of looking like tenant where you're, you know, we're driving around LA and you still see, you know, you know, July dates for tenant on posters around town. Like, you know, it's a stark reminder of the world that we're living in. So there's a big marketing challenge here and one that will be very interesting to see how the networks play it. Stay tuned again. Number three. Up third, Dan, let's go to the mailbag. Jennifer asks, with Pop exiting the original programming business and the fourth season of One Day at a Time re-airing on CBS this fall, as discussed in our previous segment, is there any chance the show moves to the broadcast network for future episodes? And speaking of Viacom, will Aquafina's Comedy Central show end up permanently on HBO Max like Southside or the other two? Well, let's start with One Day at a Time. That is a great question on what happens after the season. Um, you know, when CBS announced that it was going to be part of its fall slate, which was, again, part of the original deal with Netflix that that saw the show revived and going to pop. There was a big, big push by the creatives on One Day at a Time on social that said, watch us. If you want to see more, watch us, watch us, watch us. And, you know, look, that's a tune that they've said, well, sadly, since season one. Um, and I don't know. It's it's a great question. There were some rumors a, a few months ago that that CBS All Access could revive it. Uh, CBS All Access currently has no comedies there. You know, as we've talked about on the show before, that's why the other part of the reason why the other two and Southside from Comedy Central, which is a sibling network to CBS All Access, didn't wind up on the streaming site internally at the company, but were sold to a Warner Media backed streamer. So. Do I think one day at a time will come back? I don't know. If the ratings are huge, which I don't know. I mean, I would presume that a bulk of the audience who are who is really passionate about the show already watched it on Pop, which is a basic cable network, and and it was available to watch online as well. So I don't I don't know what the ratings for for that kind of gently used programming will be, despite how much of a fan base it's got and how much push it gets on social. But, you know, the other obstacle I think is that it's owned entirely by Sony TV, which means CBS will have to pay a licensing fee to do it. So it's also a multicam. Do you keep shooting it without an audience if it goes back? You know, you've got, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of obstacles on that one. So I think if it does well, I, it would be a great success story for CBS to keep and broaden out that audience. But I don't know um, that that show is sadly just has had such a, a, a crazy crazy history to it that I'm rooting for it, but I, I don't know. I've, I'm too chicken shit to, to guarantee that it'll come back. Oh, it would, it would definitely be the most unexpected twist in the show's series of unexpected zigs and zags. If somehow it became a wild success on CBS and it got resurrected in that respect, what I would say is. And CBS has had great success with multicams, although what's a multicam without a live audience? But to me, it's more what is the true incentive to CBS in giving this extensive promotion? And I don't know what the answer to that is, because I, I think if we're being honest, most of the CBS audience was unaware that this show existed on Netflix and they were unaware that it existed on pop, that there is an audience out there that if you were leading into it with an original multicam maybe would stick around or if CBS had the right platforms and decided to promote it extensively. But I, I just don't know where the advantage to them in doing that 
is. So, you know, tell your friends, tell everyone, you know, one day at a time is coming for at least a brief window on CBS and it remains a show worth your attention and a show that people would like. It is a mainstream show. Uh, but yeah, I just I don't know. I don't know what to what degree it would benefit CBS to say, for example, air trailers for it constantly during Big Brother or something to that effect. I just don't see why they would do that. But, you know, they're they're filling space and trying to get whatever eyeballs they can in the same sense that uh, I think Manhunt is not a show that got any attention whatsoever on Spectrum. And the second season, which was basically the Olympic bombing and Richard Jewell and the subsequent Manhunt for the actual bomber, it was an above average season of television that nobody talked about because it was on Spectrum and no one talks at all about Spectrum shows in the slightest. I think that the CBS audience really and truly, if CBS could get people to watch it, would probably really like Manhunt. So it's all it's all odd. I'm intrigued by all of the experimenting that people are doing. It's what you have to do in a catastrophe situation. So, yeah, well, we'll see. Yeah. And as for the second part of the question about Aquafina is, Nor- uh, is Nora from Queens, if that will end up on HBO Max as an original. Well, the first season is already sold to HBO Max, but the second season Comedy Central is still planning to move forward with on its linear network. So beyond that, stay tuned. Any, it's anyone's guess considering the big uh, strategy change going on at Comedy Central. Our next question comes from Justin, who writes, will any positives come from the pandemic once the industry is back to what we all hope is normal? I think we're going to have to see what normal looks like and when normal looks like and what any of it actually means. Uh, You know, talking to enough writers, as we do regularly, I, I think that there have definitely been conversations about the things that they like and dislike out of the Zoom writer's room and what they feel like they've gained and haven't gained. I've definitely heard a lot of people talking about the opportunities that this should hypothetically give, for example, to writers who don't live in New York and L.A. Is it a way of getting more non-coastal elite writers into writer's rooms? Uh, Will we see that actually happening? I don't know. I've seen some arguments that this ought to be hugely beneficial for writers with any variety of disabilities because the writer's room process is sometimes not hugely amenable to that. So those are things that should maybe be possible. It should give more people more opportunities than just the clumps of people in New York and L.A. Uh, will it actually do that? I I don't know, because I think probably so many people at the networks are so eager to get back to business as usual that they're not going to instantly go, OK, well, you know, what are the huge advantages other than whatever money we might have saved on lunches every day from having people in Zoom writers rooms? Yeah. The other, the other thing is, you know, maybe the remote stuff is actually continues to be good for the environment. I don't know. Maybe, you know, I, I'm honestly like I wasn't looking forward to commuting from Burbank to Beverly Hills to our new office. And, you know, now I, I feel like my productivity is is higher because I'm, I'm working at home and there's fewer distractions, even though I have a, a barking dog half the time. The other piece is the amount of time that people in, in our industry spend commuting or on the freeway or driving from meeting to meeting that all vanishes, you know, if you can continue to do it remotely, you know, we've heard from network executives who say it's going to be harder to get to get them on planes to go out for a pitch or to go to a premiere when they can kind of do it remotely. 
So I think that's definitely something to keep an eye on. The other piece is, you know, if you're a showrunner and you've got a crazy taxing job, you can pro- maybe try and do it from anywhere. You know, I've seen uh, Grey's Anatomy showrunner Krista Vernoff working from the beach. Like, how good for her for your mental health is that? I mean, I'm envious of that. But I'm sure it is, but I haven't. I, but we keep talking to people who talk about how you just don't get the same interplay and interactivity and and how you just can't have the same creative process and how this still feels like a a sorry alternative to the real thing. And I've heard much more of that than, man, I've been so excited to discover how many things are easier in this way. Uh, and I think that we've also, you know, all of the various attempts at doing quarantine productions that we've seen. I don't know that any of them have come away feeling, oh, that's better than the real thing. You know, something like Love in the Time of uh, Corona on Freeform, that, that is not taking the place of actual real TV. That is a that is a placeholder because people are doing the best they can. And, and I can respect the attempts of things like that, but that's not television. And so I, I don't think we're going to see a lot of that. Uh, as I said last week, the the Democratic Convention's roll call thing with Zoom people from around the country, that was a big improvement. So maybe that's what is going to change. That's a very, very small and utterly meaningless change. Eric emails. Do you think if Disney had the opportunity for a do-over that they would charge 30 bucks for Hamilton? I'm wondering if they recognized the missed opportunity and decided now to test the pay model for Mulan. I think that's a fantastic question. Um, I think part of the the reasoning here is maybe Hamilton gets people to come in in the door and sign up. And maybe Mulan is the way to kind of further extrapolate money from the from current subscribers so you needed something to get a a wider audience in if you're going to try and 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 drop a big budget feature film on a streaming service um and try to monetize it so but but do i think if they had to do a chance to do it over they would charge at least something for hamilton yeah for sure especially when you you know as we keep saying they've lost five billion dollars in the second quarter alone and you know, their business is hurting. So but, although they did just restore restore salaries for employees, which is a, a, a big step back. Yeah, I, I'm not sure that I agree. I, I think that the the future of streaming in the company and the importance of Disney Plus required keeping people subscribed more than anything else. And that was what Hamilton did. It kept people subscribed. It added some number of subscribers. We don't have a clue because, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, the quarterly earnings call cut off just before Hamilton came. But I think that a lot of people probably were at that point thinking, why am I subscribing to Disney Plus? They haven't had an original show that I cared about basically since The Mandalorian. I'm tired of watching the same Pixar movies. What do I need this for? That got them in the door. And then once they're in the door, then you can start throwing in the add-ons. But I think Hamilton was important for keeping the lights on far more than it was important from a bottom line because you you know you're not going to make back 5 billion dollars of lost income on charging people 15 dollars for Hamilton. You just can't. So it has to be the long game. And the long game is keeping subscriber numbers healthy for Disney Plus. And that is what Hamilton was there for. Now, as to what Mulan is actually going to do and if Mulan is incredibly successful, what that allows Disney Plus to do 
subsequently that that is a real question. But I think and I could totally be wrong, you know, in, you know, in the Disney offices, they could be sitting there going, man, every, every view for Hamilton would have been an extra 20 bucks. But I, I don't think they would. I, I think it served a different purpose. And I think it's just about acknowledging that there are different ways of, of making back that five billion dollars of lost income. And it's not just going to be an all in one shot kind of thing. But that's just my hunch. Yeah. If you have questions that you'd like to hear us address on future episodes of TV's Top 5, drop us an email at TV's Top 5. That's a number five at THR.com or tweet us. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Number four. Up next is our showrunner spotlight segment. You might have noticed that last week's showrunner spotlight segment was unoccupied by a showrunner spotlight. So this week's showrunner spotlight is extra long. Think of it as a bonus or a carryover or just a really good conversation. Our guest this week is Courtney Kemp, who got her start writing for shows including The Bernie Mac Show, Eli Stone, and The Good Wife. She created Star's breakout hit, Power, which ended its six-season run in February. The next extension of the franchise is Power, Book Two, Ghost. Welcome to the podcast, Courtney. I'm so excited to be here with you guys. I am psyched. Yes, let's do it. So I want to start with the most exciting thing of all, with semantics. Um, <laughs> yes! <laughs> Yes, Brown I, University MCM graduate right here. Got it. Go, oh, go for it. Oh, perfect. Excellent. I'm just interested in the terminology here with uh, with Power Book 2 Ghost and calling it Book 2 or calling it a spinoff. Why is this not Season 7 of Power? Okay, that's a great question. And actually, a lot of people have asked me, why didn't we do an official Season 7? Well, the thing is... Um, we all hate it when our favorite shows go on too long, right? When you're like, start, you start to hate watch the last few seasons of a show where you're like, are you serious, you guys? Are you serious? And I can think of a couple ones, but if I say them, I'll get in trouble. So basically... That's an off-record conversation, yeah. Yes, yeah, an off-record, exactly. <laughs> but what I will say is that um, I, I didn't feel that once we killed off Ghost that we could still call it power. It wasn't the same show to me. It was a different iteration of that idea. And because I had really, as I'm sure you guys know, uh, based the whole last season in part on who shot JR, that sort of thing was like, okay, they did who shot JR and then he didn't die. So you kept going on, right? But once we were in that place of like, Ghost got shot, it appeared to be fatal. We were going to uh, kill him. Uh, then I thought, well, we can't move into the next phase and call it the same show. The other thing that had happened was that um, there had become this sort of uh, the expectation of the show to do twists and turns was very high. And I don't know how familiar you guys are with the show itself, but it's very like twisty, turny, you know. So we do a lot of what we call oh shit moments. Like it's supposed to be the audience supposed to be yelling oh shit or oh shit. You know what I mean? It depends on like which one we're doing, but or oh shit. But whatever <laughs> it is, it's supposed to give you that feeling. And I had gotten to a point now where we were going to get into the realm of the ridiculous. 
if we kept pushing, you know what I mean? We'd gotten to a place where you, in order to keep that pace going, it was going to have to be so much. Yeah, it would, so become that, a, it would be kind of become an, oh, shit, right? Yes, <laughs> totally. Oh, shit. Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> I did. Yes, Leslie. So I did this um, this thought, which is like, OK, if we're going to expand the universe then let's call them books of the saga. Let's not call them, because really what we're doing, it's not, I mean, you guys are avid consumers of media. It's the MCU, right? We're not doing anything different than the MCU. So sometimes you're going to go be an Ant-Man and then you'll come back to the Avengers and like that kind of thing. So that's really kind of uh, where it came from. And did you always know that it was going to pick up so immediately after where, power ended because it's basically you know that's that and now we're on to the new series but it's pretty directly connected yeah i did because i wanted uh to push with momentum and i wanted to create exigency for the audience to tune in so even those people who have been yelling at me for like months like how could you kill ghost you're the worst writer of all time and i'm like if you think i'm the worst writer of all time and the reason is because you care about my main character so much uh probably doesn't track just saying, but okay, cool. Whatever you think. But, uh, I wanted to create that, like what happens next feeling. And I also wanted for the audience that never watched an episode of power. I wanted them to come in with some movement and some momentum. Like, I don't know why this kid is running, but I'm interested into why he's running. Does that make sense? I hope that makes sense. It does. Yeah. You know, in, in the larger scheme of things, you know, we've, we are at this moment where franchising a hit show is, just part of the business uh, structure and, and part of the strategy. Um, we're seeing it with The Walking Dead. Obviously, you guys, Marvel is a whole other ball of wax. It's happening on TV, you know, uh, with DC Universe and all that other stuff on on the CW and multiple, like Grey's Anatomy's got two shows or now a third show, I should say. But, so you many. Know, so many, right? You know, there's two Breaking Bads, et cetera. You know, you've got four spinoffs that are all concurrently in the works. Can you talk us through a what that process is like for you? I see you laughing on our on our Google Hangout here, but but when when you first envision and and when you first sign on for Power back in what 2013, is this a larger world that that you envisioned at the time, or was this something where stars kind of came in and said, "You are our are the face of our network. You are the most valuable show on our air." With apologies to Outlander, but your ratings are bigger. Your um, they're building their entire strategy around you and, and to some extent Outlander too. But talk a little bit about how this all came to be and, and seriously, four shows all at the same time in the same world. How do you delineate? Obviously, one of them's a prequel, but like that's a big, big question and it's a lot to chew on there. Okay, so I'll try to break it down. When I started this, I was 35. I had not um, written a show I hadn't run my own show before. I was coming off of uh, three years at uh, The Good Wife, um, where I had seen great television be made. And uh, I was coming off of a, uh, a short moment at Hawaii Five-0. And so I was, I was really innocent in a lot of ways, and that really helped me because I came in with more questions than answers. I didn't feel like I had to come in and be sort of swaggy and braggadocio, like, yo, I know what I'm doing. I was like, I know the story I want to tell. I don't know how to run television. You guys teach me. And so in, as a result, I really did get to learn from some great television professionals, some of whom I still work with. Um, that said, I think as we got to the end of the run, um, I did not want to do six seasons. I actually should say that first. I wanted to do five. 
And I was asked by the network to do a sixth season. And then in order to go through that sixth season and to push myself and to remain creative, that's how we came up with the Rashomon at the end of the season. And I have to give a lot of credit to one of my writers, Monica Mitchell, who was like, why don't we just tell this story from different perspectives? And I was like, yes, let's push the genre. And a lot of people didn't understand it, but those that did understand it loved it because they got to live with a character for a whole episode, which was really nice. I would say that what occurred to me was I was being pushed to do a season seven, as Dan asked about at the beginning, right? Um, And I said, I don't want to do season seven because I don't have a story to tell. But what I can do is I can create other stories. And so the first thing that came to mind actually Uh, The first one that I really considered was the influence one um, about Tate, because I think that character is so interesting. And episode 614 was such a great way of 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 platforming it. And then the Tariq idea came out of some conversations I had with my former boss, Chris Albrecht, who kind of said that won't work. And I was like, yeah, it will. And, you know, I I don't know if you guys have watched The Last Dance, but it's like the Michael Jordan thing of like, tell Michael he can't do it. This is a little bit of that. Just a little bit. It's it's a character defect. It's a flaw for sure. But But that's also what happens when when a network changes its CEO in the middle of a show's of a successful show's run. I think I think I don't want to put Chris on blast. I think he I think his feeling was that he understood the appeal of the show from his perspective. And I'm in the book two of it. I'm telling a show that is from a younger perspective. It's it's a it's a show about a, you know, 18 year old. I mean, actually, Tariq isn't even 18 when we meet him. He's 17 when we see him in the beginning. So it is a kind of a different show. And where Chris was right, I think, is that we in creating the show and, and casting it and re- looking for that balance between people who are my age. Uh, I'm 43 and people who are uh, younger it's like giving the Method Man and the Mary J. Blige and giving them that sort of, you know, th- those people who are my age, that familiarity with the text and still giving younger people a chance to be like, yes, we get our 90210. We get our, you know what I mean? <laughs> we get our thing because we didn't have that, you know? Um, I will just make it a point here to say that it's a funny thing that shows that have multiple cultures, LGBT characters, shows that have like everybody represented, those shows are niche or genre, as opposed to shows that have all white straight people, which are called mainstream. Nope, (laughs) should be the other way around, right? So that's kind of where I look at things like, I want to create, if you think about 90210, when I was a kid, everybody was white and straight. And they had the occasional person of color, right? Occasionally. And I guess Andrea Zuckerman was supposed to be coded as Jewish, but not entirely, like, like we didn't talk about it. Yeah, exactly. Totally. And so it was this really weird uh, thing where we didn't have anybody to look at. And so, yeah, I want to push the genre. And in comedy, Kenya's got you with Gronish, and I'm just pushing it in a, you know, in the drama area. Okay, I have to ask now, because you're bringing up the, uh, the 90210 comparison, and the first episode does begin with Tariq uh, tutoring a basketball player. Are you straight up going to Sean Hardell with that? <laughs> what a good <laughs> reference. No, I wasn't. I was going more. Okay, so here's the real thing. I have an obsession with the NCAA, like an obsession with what they do to kids, which is they bring you in and they say, hey, listen, you're not going to get paid. You can't sell your jersey. Um, and we're going to give you an education. 
but you can't get one. My ex-husband was a, a football player at Brown University with, with me. And I was like, his work, his uh, athletic schedule was not designed to allow him to go to class. It wasn't designed to do that. It was designed to force you to do this. And this is Ivy League football, man. Not everybody's <laughs> watching Ivy League football. So when you get to like the SEC or you get to these huge basketball programs, it's like, ooh. And so Stansfield is an Ivy League school, right? But we created it thinking more like Duke, where the, the basketball is a huge part of how they make their money and how they sell their brand. And so in that way, I was trying to comment on the idea that you, you don't, they don't want you to get an education. That's not what you're there for. And you're not getting paid. You can't have it. I think it's you can't have it both ways. If they are professionals hired to do a job, then pay them. And if you're profiting off of them. Hugely. And if you are a student, let me get an education. Right. So anyway, that's my soapbox (laughs) for the day. It will not be the first that I get on. But, you know, going just going back to the the larger strategy here, I am. I'm fascinated that the idea of running four interconnected shows all at the same time, like, how are you like, it, what, what's the larger goal? I mean, you know, maybe structurally is this, you know, to have the show on one in every quarter or two in every quarter, I mean, or have the show on 52 weeks out of the year, which, you know, I, I already feel like you need some sleep. Um, first of all, girl, yes, I need some sleep. <laughs> um, second of all, I think, I'm not running them all. I should say that I'm not running them all. Um, I have, uh, these shows are not, I don't take created by credits on the other ones. Ghost I created, but the other ones are created by their creators. So Sasha Penn is the creator of Raising Canaan and uh, Robert Munich is the creator of Forest. I don't, I don't need to have spread my stink everywhere in that way. So they have dedicated showrunners. And then my job is just, uh, for lack of a better way of putting it, is I need to make sure that everything is a genuine Lego product, right? I know you're making the like Lego and friends and you're making the Star Wars Legos, but those Legos need to be all Legos. If that, does that metaphor kind of track? Like I need to make sure that even if you want to use one piece over here and another piece over here, they speak to each other. And it's kind of a continuity thing. Um, And making sure the voices sound right. You know, making sure that the Tommy that you get in Force is the Tommy you've grown to love, making sure that the young Kanan that Sasha is writing really feels like he grows up into that giant force of nature that was 50 as uh, as Kanan Stark. Well, within that context, how is it possible or how do you work to make each show autonomous while also having characters who are presumably going between as many as one, two or three shows at the same time? I mean, I, I hate to sort of sound like a broken record, but I think it really is about finding quality showrunners who have a point of view and a voice and then letting them do their work, right? So you can have kind of within the same, and again, I'm just doing the same thing, Guardians of the Galaxy has a very different tone, right, than Joss Whedon's Avengers those two movies, right? Those two, the first two, like that Avengers movie and then Age of Ultron, they have a certain tone. Um, The Iron Man, you know, Jean Favreau, Iron Man, different tone, right? But they still all speak to each other. And when the thing, the key element, I think, and I'm a huge Russo Brothers fan, like I'm obsessed with them. And I think one of the things that they did so brilliantly in Civil War is that they allow each character sounds like their character. However they were defined, they come in and they stay defined in that way. And I, I, I think that's what it is. It's like um, 
it, I keep going to toy metaphors, but it's like, I'm loaning you Malibu Barbie. Don't put her in a Russian, you know, dress. She's Malibu Barbie. Keep her Malibu Barbie, but you can take her over to the G.I. Joe world and it's fine. Give her a uh, gun. <laughs> I would watch that show. Yeah, I was just saying the, the same way, thing. Yeah, that show is sexy as hell. I'm ready for it all day. All right. All right. Hasbro, if you're listening, there you go. There's your showrunner. <laughs> Um, but, you know, in, in a larger sense, you know, now overseeing a franchise that is growing. And I think, you know, you've got there's force four spinoffs, as we mentioned, in, in the works already. I would imagine that there's probably room for more. This is a, a, a huge world that you're building. But in, can you speak a little bit to, to your larger goal? Like what what are you looking to tell different stories in this? Like what what is the, the larger purpose here and, and some, you know, be, beyond story that you're looking to do? I mean, in a. I think the most honest answer for this, and maybe I shouldn't say it, but I think it's it's fair, is that I really, I'm still in the process of deciding which North Star I want to go to. So there's the David Kelly model where you have multiple shows and you're really involved in the writing of each show. You know, you really are writing the shows. There, there are other models where the showrunner face of the kind of company is no longer writing. That person is more of like a, a figurehead, you know, a face, a, a brand, if you will. I don't know that my ultimate goal is to put up more spinoffs than this, to be honest with you, of power. But I think the goal would be to create um, a, and again, broken record, but in creating these shows, I've been able to hire so many BIPOC folks, so many women and women in, in jobs that women don't usually get to do. Women as, you know, directors and line producers and, you know, UPMs. And I've been able, location managers, I've been able to, like, do good stuff behind the scenes. I've been able to hire a lot of LGBT folks. And this is the thing. It's like, it's not as though people aren't getting hired now. But I got started doing it a little while ago when it wasn't cool and when I got pushed back. I mean, I will tell you guys, I really wanted to hire Ava DuVernay. For a, to direct an episode of Power, and I was told she didn't have enough experience, and I will leave it at that. But this is what I'm saying. Like, this is so many years ago that that was, like, a, rejected as a notion. And I think that's what I'm talking about, is, like, we still have so much work to do that the more shows you get on the air, pun intended, the more power you have to create change. And so I really want to create change. Is your sense that right now you have the capacity to hire not Ava DuVernay, because you, of course, could hire her now, but the unknown She's out of my price of range her. now. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But, but, but like today, today, if you went to Stars and said, I have someone with the same credits as she had at that time, could you get that person hired today, do you think? It's still, it's still difficult. It's still not as easy, and it's still not as easy. And it, this isn't specific to stars. This is specific to pretty much everywhere. They still, it's a lot of money you spend on people and giving them a shot. And so, you know, um, I was just able to hire Eve Rivera, who is a director. I gave him his first, you know, TV hour. He's great. He did a great job. He's been directing music videos forever. You know, like he knows what to do. He was an undercover cop before that. The reason I bring it up is just because like, this is a person with incredible amounts of experience, a New Yorker, a person of color, like all these things. And it's still like, well, he hasn't really do like, so what? Like I didn't run a show before. I don't care about that. I haven't done a podcast like this before. That doesn't mean I don't do it. It doesn't mean that you guys aren't going to be like, well, We'll ask her back. She didn't know how to turn on the microphone. Like, what? who cares? 
Like we just learn how we just, you know, we allow for there to be room for people to grow. On Ghost, I have an incredibly young writing staff and that sometimes is extremely frustrating because they don't always know exactly a writer's room etiquette or how to pitch and things like that. But I love them because I want to grow them into other, into showrunners like me. I want them to have that knowledge. I'm not more talented than they are. I'm more experienced. I get to share my experience. I'm sorry. I'm talking way too much. Anyway, no, this is, <laughs> this is great. No, we love all this, what, everything that you're saying, you know, but, but I think it, it takes people um, who are in positions of power like yourself and networks who are willing to, to go out and say, we're going to hire this first time showrunner because she is the right person for the job. We are going to hire these baby writers for this show because they are the right voices to populate our room with. And, you know, it's like you learn by doing, you know, I had no experience as a TV reporter. I got promoted off the copy desk at the Hollywood Reporter because I love television and I had been reading about it as a copy editor for years. And someone mm-hmm. took a chance on me. Lacey Rose took a chance on me. Janice Min took a chance on me. And I would not be here were it not for, for people who were in positions of power who were willing to take a chance on someone who was young and hungry. Well, middle-aged yes. and hungry. So... <laughs> I'm middle-aged and hungry also, which has been a huge uh, factor of my COVID, uh, my, now my COVID diet, which has been (laughs) middle-aged and hungry, but yes. Yeah. I'm calling it the COVID 20. Yeah. It's totally the COVID 20. And can I just say though, that's another thing that I always say to young people because young kids of color are always like, well, I need to find a black person to mentor me. No, you don't. Okay. The first person who, like the people who looked out for me early in my career didn't look like me. They didn't at all. So when you look at, um, Greg Berlanti, that is a white gay man, did not hired me, believed in me, supported me. Uh, Robert and Michelle King, Jeff Melvoin. Um, I mean, Yvette Lee Bowser is one of my mentors, but and she does look like me. But like, I had all these people who didn't look like me, who came and like showed up and were. They didn't have to be like me in order to say, "Yeah, you got it." And I think that's like a super important thing, you know. Presumably, you also had experiences with people who weren't as mentoring or nurturing over the years how early on in a relationship with somebody do you realize okay this is someone who actually wants to help me versus this is someone who just wants to make the show and doesn't particularly care about me and you mentioned at the top of the show that you were you had a hot second on hawaii 50 which was a peter linkoff (laughs) show and we obviously know what just happened to him yeah and i actually was really sad and reading about some of that coverage because i feel like there does get to a point where nobody wants to tell you what you're doing wrong um, because the risk is so great. And you do get to a point where I, I, I just, I mean, I did not last long there because I have a big mouth. Like I said earlier, I didn't last long. Um, I, I, I have a hard time with uh, seeing things happen to people and, and I, I tend to call them out and then that gets me in trouble. But what I would say separately from Peter, and it's, Really, I want to say separately from Peter, because Peter's specific issues do not necessarily correlate to race or gender um, or sexuality, actually nationality, ethnicity at all. But what I would say is that as a person of color and as a woman, I walk into most situations knowing that someone will not like me for what I am. I do not anymore carry the hope that who I am will change their mind. But what I do know is that the only color that matters in Hollywood is green. So if I can make you money over time, you will treat me either with the respect that goes along with that 
or you will ignore me and pretend I'm not there while I make you money. Either way, it works for me. Uh, and I know that sounds kind of sad, but I don't know. I mean, it's why it's called, it's not called show friends. It's called show business. Yeah. You're not and wrong. We're in the business of making money. Um, I know that sounds cold, but I've been very fortunate to be allowed the room to make the shows that I wanted to make. I've been very fortunate. I have a lot to be grateful for. And the, some of the people who allowed me those decisions were straight white dudes who were not so interested in the causes I was interested in, the things that I cared about, you know, extracurricularly, they didn't care about that. But they were like, hmm, that seems like a good episode of television. That's all that matters, right? When it comes to the work and being respected for the work. That's, that's I think, where I am with that, if that makes a lot of sense. But, you know, but we're also at a point in, in our industry where there is a reckoning where networks and studios um, are being held accountable for a lack of inclusive programming, for, for not having a roster of talent for overall deals. And even on the executive side, you know, we see NBC Universal is struggling to find someone to take over an entertainment programming job because, you know, they, I'm told they want a woman and a person of color and that, well, that those people have already said no, because there's not a lot of them. So, I mean, <laughs> how, I mean, when, when you, as you're, you're watching this happen and, and reading these headlines, you know, what, what can Hollywood do to, to change things? Like what would be the first thing that, that you would do if you were running a network or running a, a studio? Wow. That's a great question because actually I've been asked that recently. Like, do you, would you want to run a network? Sometimes I think, yes, I would. To be honest with you, sometimes I think, yes, I would want to run a network. And that's the first time I'm saying that. But like uh, the problem is, Leslie, the green lighters haven't changed. Exactly. Like this NBC job doesn't have green light power. Exactly. And I think the people who are, quote unquote, experienced enough to take that job want green light power in that in their next job because they are, quote unquote, experienced enough. But the, the bar is always higher for us. So I'm looking for a woman of color. I need her to be a, a triple Ivy League, hop on one leg. Can she do a cartwheel? Like she has to be so elevated and excellent. And I will, I'll know for, I'll just say for myself that, you know, recently someone said to me, oh, your dad went to Amos Tough Business School. That must be why you're like that. What? That's why I'm like that? Like what? But again, I am, you know, they, people keep referring to me as a unicorn. And I'm like, no, I just grew up in Westport, Connecticut. I had parents who demanded that I go to graduate school. I have very specific, you know, kind of uh, prominence that I come from, but I'm no different than any other woman or person of color or anything. Like I'm not any different just because my education makes you more comfortable because the way that I speak makes you more comfortable or the way that I, my references or the places I've been make you more comfortable, it doesn't mean that inside I'm not a revolutionary. It just means that I look like this and I sound like this. But like, bitch, give me a chance. I'm not, I'm going to make it work. And I think that's the thing is like, we have to, the change has not happened at those upper levels. And it's still resistant to change at those upper levels. And it's still about keeping those voices out of the room. And then something like Tara Duncan at Freeform happens and we all rejoice because we're like, yes, somebody who's actually the dude. And by the way, that word is still, I mean, I'm going to say this, she's 100% that bitch. Like she is the one who has that call. And like, that's what we want. We want those people, those things to happen. And I think that, you know, 
it's too often that the the story doesn't turn out that way. I have a couple friends who could do that job, Leslie, who could be great at that NBC entertainment job, but I don't think they're getting the phone call. I think the the people who are making the phone call and the reason they're having a hard time is they're calling the usual suspects that other straight white men have already anointed so they can see like, I didn't take a huge risk. He hired her too. Seriously, seriously, a hundred percent. It's like, they don't want to stick their neck out and make a, uh, make a mistake because the board evaluates that, you know, it's like, it's, it's, and it's a publicly held, I mean, it's like all those things. I'm sorry, but you know, you know what I'm saying? It's like, they, they don't want to give anybody new a shot. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, and then you see a company like, you know, like Disney take, take a shot, as you mentioned with Tara at, at, at Freeform, which, you know, she was a next gen member on a Hollywood reporter list a couple of years ago. Like a lot of people in town are, were buzzing about that. And that was probably the first time many of them were even talking about Freeform. In a long time. So correct. And that's correct. because they took and a by, chance. And it was a great marketing move. It's two things. Cause you just, you put the like absolute nail on it, Leslie. No one was talking about freeform. Then they make this call and now everybody's talking about it because of this. It's like, that is smart. Everybody talked about Channing's promotion when it happened, you know? Right. And I think, yeah, maybe, yeah. I, maybe, maybe network president, Maybe someday. I don't know. Well, I, I, it'll be too much militant programming. It'll be, you know, <laughs> so we'll see. Well, within those confines, though, I mean, there's there's the network president approach or then there's the Greg Berlanti approach where I'm going to make so many TV shows myself and put my name on so many things that I'm going to change things that way, where I'm going to have 21 shows on TV that are through my prism, which is a different approach to sort of taking over without having to become an executive at a network. Is is that appealing to you? I'm going to say, I think this is four words. Greg is, no, five, a goddamn genius. <laughs> he is the most inspiring human being in terms of, like, I learned so many things from that dude. Seriously. He's so smart. He's so creative. Uh, and when I was really young and working for him, I was like, how can I be this dude? This is literally what happened, right? He was 34 years old and he was running... Dirty Sexy, Brothers and Sisters, which we called in-house Bros and Hoes, and uh, Eli Stone, which is where I was working. And it was just watching him and like going to the other shows that he was on. Like sometimes we would go to Dirty Sexy and work in one room while he worked in the other. It was just like so inspiring. And I was like, I want to do that. And then I got into it. I was like, oh, this is hard. But he always looks great. Like he's like no hair out of place. Teeth are perfect. Everything's great. Yeah. Greg's version is as a writer. Absolutely. As a creative. Absolutely. But do I think Greg would be a great network president? Hell yes. <laughs> you know, because there's some people who are pure artists and there's some people who are business people. And there's some people who are lucky enough to have both. And, and he's one of them. I don't know that I'm ready for that yet. I love writing. I love writing. And what we've seen with Greg is Greg has kind of, you know, he, he did love Simon, like he's been in film, you know, that's something else that John Wells did. John Wells was like, I'm going to make some movies. So he made August Osage County. You know what I mean? He made, um, the businessman one, I forget what it's called. Um, company town, maybe. Is that what it's called? Something with something with company. I'm blanking on what it was. Right. But like, that's a way of doing it. Do I want to make movies? Eventually. I'd love to write and direct a little something. Um, but I think uh, there's a lot of different ways to go. That's a good question. It's a good question. So a power movie? I wanted to do a power movie five years ago. 
Okay, so here was the pitch. I wanted to do one night of Ghost and Tommy selling drugs. It was the biggest night of the year in New York for drugs, which is New Year's Eve. And it was just literally going to be from sunup on December 31st to sunup January 1st. And it was going to be, I wanted to do it as a Christmas special, a two-hour, like, BBC-style Christmas special. And they just didn't have, stars at the time didn't have the financial model for that. And so they just said no. And I was like, you guys, but my you guys was not heard. That said, still could do it. Still could yeah. do it. Well, now you got Lionsgate behind you, with that, which has a yeah. theatrical arm. Totally. Yeah. Mm. Thing is, when, when are people going back to the movies, though, Leslie? Uh, 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 God damn it. Why, you had to bring reality into this. Uh, I know, but I want to see Tenet on a big screen. I don't too. want to see Tenet at home. You know yeah. what I mean? What's, what is the point of seeing a Chris Nolan movie at your house? Unless your house is the Arclight. Yeah. yeah. I also just want to see my friends and family. I want to be able to hug Dan. It's been too long. Oh, that's so sweet. I love that. And I want to see Tenet on the big screen. I just don't want to die to see it on the big yeah, screen exactly. as a as a personal preference, I would say. Word. Word. Yeah, absolutely. Like yeah. the other night I was uh, making tacos for my daughter and I cut my finger and I didn't know how deep the cut was. You know, at first you don't know how deep the cut is. And I was like, well, I'm not going to go to the hospital. So I hope I don't have to lose this finger. It's going to make t- typing really shitty. Because <laughs> I'm yeah. like, I don't want to go to the hospital. I don't go outside. Outside. Yikes. Yeah. Well, yeah. now we need the follow up, though. Finger OK? <laughs> Just fine. Little, yeah. oh, little OK. Not, not, I was going to say, not even a Band-Aid. What are we talking about here? <laughs> exactly. Not even a Band-Aid. Just a little a little mark. But I didn't know at first because like, I felt it. I was like, because I was doing something stupid. I was holding an avocado to make guacamole and I cut into toward my palm. Stupid. Stupid. <sighs> I tend to do that with bagels. That is the thing that I chop my hand open. Dude, on, get so. a bagel slicer. They're like 15 bucks. Um, because I used to you do that too. The, you put the bagel in and then you just go like this and it's yeah. perfect. And you get a lot of like really de-stress. Ah, oh, it's poppy yeah. seeds. 100%. What's your bagel, Dan? What's your bagel of choice? Um, I am probably a sesame seed person, but I can do an everything bagel as well. How about Got you? It? Uh, egg. Egg. Okay. An, an egg bagel toasted and buttered from H and H. Like really just like right in your hand. Are you a New Yorker? Uh, not really a New Yorker. And unfortunately in L.A. now where the bagels are at best, mediocre. <laughs> um, Noah's bagels all the way for me, but I'm not adventurous. I'm, I like the, the water bagels, so don't judge me. Uh, I will not judge you. I will pray no ju- for you. No. <laughs> <laughs> I will not judge. I will not judge. Funny story. So uh, about... I grew up, uh, I, this is out there in the zeitgeist already, but so when I grew up, I, I had all Jewish friends. My parents didn't really let me muck about with Gentiles so much when I was growing up. They, they were like, you know, we grew, I grew up in Westport, Connecticut. No one was, um, it was like 35% Jewish. And um, my parents were like, go to these homes. These people are like us. They've been hunted out of everywhere. Right. So I got this really like I grew up in this really specific kind of worldview because uh, I was the black kid. But that's how I under- I experienced difference. So I grew up with speaking Yiddish. I grew up with, you know, uh, with you know specific foods that are cultural. So the other day I ordered from Russ and Daughters. I ordered schmear. I ordered smoked salmon. I ordered pumpernickel bread. I ordered all these bagels. And my friend uh, Sasha was like, so uh am I coming over for brunch? And I was like, I'll throw bagels at you from the, <laughs> from the 
front yard. But the point of me telling the story is that my mom did 23andMe. And we found out I, she's 25% Jewish. It's like my she mom. always knew on, it's like she always knew on some level. <laughs> it's, it's, like, it's like she always knew, exactly. But anyway, I just think it's funny because there's so many things in this, in our country right now where people are drawing such great lo- lines. You're like this. I'm like this. We're all mixed up. We're all a bunch of different, I mean, that's the history of this country is that we're all mixed up and we're all different things and that we need to embrace each other. So that was my long-winded way of saying that. But anyway. I, I, I love that. How have you been working and functioning these last five months? What? How have you been allotting your time and distributing your resources? It's really about what's the next right action. And then always checking in with myself um, and like my own spirituality about balance. So, you know, when my little person knocks on the door and I'm on my writer's room, I was running two earlier this, that was really hard. I was running two writer's rooms at once. That was very difficult. Um, I was running the Dirty 30 writer's room. You know, that's the show that I'm working on for HBO, which is not in the power universe. And I, we haven't gotten a green light on that show yet, but we had a exploratory room on that. And then I was working on the ghost season two writer's room and going back and forth. And then when my daughter would come into the room, I would just have to like, literally just be like, okay, I'm going to stop what I'm doing and focus on you. What do you need in this moment? And then she would tell me and I'd say, guys, I'll be back. And like, you know, you just have to kind of do the thing in front of you Win the one in front of you. Um, there's a great saying by Herman Edwards. I'm a football fan. And he says, like, know your role, do your job. So it's like, I got to know my role. So when my daughter comes in, mommy, I'm the only person who answers to that, right? That's the one person when you're asking for that person. That's you. Everybody else can kind of wait when that happens. Right. And then sometimes she has to wait because John Feltheimer's on the phone and I've got to deal with that. Okay. Cause I got to know my role and do my job. And I can't always say to John, you know what? I can't do that right now because of my kid, but he's a parent. And even on some level, he understands, Hey man, you got to do that. Um, the harder thing is exercise. And the harder thing is also not stuffing my face because I like food. And this has been a very stressful period. I mean, it's, this has been a hard hard few months for everybody. I think, Dan, the biggest thing that I've learned is that everyone is having a hard time. Leslie just said it. She said, I'd like to hug Dan. Wouldn't we like to hug our friends? Even just human touch, you know, this has been hard. And I have a, my mom is, uh, she's over 75. I won't give her exact age because she wouldn't like that. Um, But it's very hard. She's been in quarantine longer than we have. Remember, they sent the older people into quarantine first. So that was very difficult as well. I couldn't see her for months until I'd been tested. So that's tough. It's been tough on everyone. And I think it's about being gentle with yourself, gentle with others, not expecting them to jump when you say jump, because you don't know how much they're picking themselves up off the floor. Yeah. And, and at the same time, and, you know, on top of, you know, the, the quarantine and COVID and everything that comes along with that in the election cycle, then, you know, we saw, obviously, there was an, another shooting this week, and we all saw, you know, you look, you're a big sports fan. We saw what professional athletes did on Wednesday, which, you know, shut down major sports leagues and, and you know, a couple a Dodger game got shut down. Obviously, the all of the NBA playoffs paused. You know, does that kind of make you ponder whether you're going to, you know, write that into something? Is that is there a show there that you or a story there that, that you would like to tell? Or is there a, a bigger way to kind of get people in our industry talking more about what we should be talking about here? 
This is a great question. I actually am really struggling with a couple of thoughts. I'm so glad you asked. Because the first thing is, what is our responsibility as storytellers, right? That story is unfolding in real time. So it's hard to have like a TV show about it because you don't know where it's going to land, really. So you don't know where the arc is, what's the parabola, right? But in terms of how I feel today, I think change has to come and you have to force someone's hand. And I, I believe that there will be many people in this country who uh, shut up and dribble will be said. And I think that they don't get it. They don't get it. They don't. I think what they don't understand is the fact that every person of color feels that shooting. You feel it. Like you feel it physically because you know that what it's about and you know that you are hunted and you know that you are unsafe. And I'm not even joking when I say that my mom would say when talking about our Jewish friends, these folks have been hunted out of everywhere. That feeling you get of lack of safety in the world is real. And it's not something you can change. So I think Doc Rivers last night, if you guys saw Doc Rivers' comments, he said it better than anyone else. Like, why do we love our country? Why do we keep loving our country when our country doesn't love us back? When will we learn? And I, I actually feel very strongly, we create culture. America's biggest export is culture. That's what we send to the rest of the world. That's what we, I mean, more than wheat, <laughs> we send uh, culture. And African-Americans specifically create so much culture and we make so much money, especially off of our bodies. From Megan the Stallion all the way to LeBron James, we make so much money off of these bodies that our country tells us are not precious and do not belong walking free. And so I think it is, it's hard. It's very hard as a person of color, I think today, or any day to walk around with this. The difficulty is that this is not new. It's been happening for years. It's just that the headlines, you guys work in journalism, you know, the headlines now, the, the push to, to actually popularize or, or talk about these things is bigger. This is a headline. It's a good story. Five years ago, this was still happening, but it wasn't a good story. And so I think that's what's difficult about it is that, is this the time to strike? I don't know, but a change has to happen because our current administration is still pretending that we are a minority, when in fact, people who think this way and think that things that are happening are wrong are a majority. <laughs> Sorry, I, occasionally no, it, I can go sermony. <laughs> it, it's, so. it's very true and it's notable sort of watching the past three nights in primetime, the number of people standing on podiums associated with the current convention saying people are in the street unhappy, but clearly there's no problem, as opposed to, wait, if people are telling you there's a problem, why would you say that there's not? <laughs> Well, this is clearly a problem. Like there's not, a, it's, it's like, it's clearly a problem and it's clearly systemic. And, you know, in I'm writing a dirty 30 about police corruption, but it's really not about corruption. It's about our attitude toward this. You know, why are, why are police in other countries not even armed? I mean, if you think about that, just think about sort of what, where, where our minds are. I think it's hard though, because we are American and we fought and gotten so far here I am. I live specifically, I chose this. I live in a part of LA that used to be restricted where blacks could not live. 
Nat King Cole actually integrated this part of Los Angeles when he bought a house here. I live in Hancock Park. And I chose to buy here, to live here, because I wanted to show my daughter, you know what? This is what we do. We continue to take space. We continue to make sure that we are seen, that it is important that we are seen. But at the same time, you know, should I have, I still feel like, I still feel like there's so much change that has to happen. I feel so grateful that I can buy here. I feel so grateful that things have changed, that redlining is illegal, that that, that, that federal case was won. But under the current administration, it would never have been won. So I think that there's a lot of work that we need to do. And I, I, um, and I think that really the responsibility is for white people to talk to each other. We've been talking. We've been saying it. We've been yelling it. We've been shouting it. But it's really about my friends whose parents still live in Ohio live in swing states, saying, you can't do this. You can't vote for him because it endangers the life of my boss. It endangers the life of my friends. It endangers the life of, you know what I mean? It comes down to that. And not that I'm getting on a political soapbox here, but to say that we, the responsibility now needs to fall on white people, just as in the black trans community, for example, the responsibility is on those of us who are not trans to say to other people who are not trans, hey, stop it. Stop that fucking bullshit right now. It is not cool. It's not okay. Because that's our responsibility, right? Black trans women are being murdered. And I think it's time, you know, we have to stop that. It just, it is what it is. I don't know if that feels like a, a different segue, but what I'm really saying is those of us who are in a position to have the conversation must have the conversation. Right, so, which is what I think is interesting. It will be interesting to see how shows like Brooklyn Nine-Nine or Law and Order SVU, if they are able to write in what's happening in the world right now in our society. When, and to your point, what has obviously been happening for, for a long time, but TV, especially broadcast, it's right there in the name. It, it reaches a broad audience, right? It, you know, and, you know, so much of what I do and what I think about, it goes back to a, a quote from someone who was important to me, Harvey Milk, and for the LGBT community. And he said something along the lines of, if you, if they know us, they can't discriminate against us. And I think that inherently is the power of television when it goes into homes across the globe, right? Shows like Law and Order and, and Grey's Anatomy, et cetera, are, are sold Globally, I think Grey's is in something like 250 mark, you know, global markets. But when a show like that tackles something that is timely and important, and it it, it has the power to change minds, so I, I'm just curious, you know, from your vantage point, is there a way for for a show like Brooklyn Nine Nine to continue on without going there? Like, what would you do if you were running that show? I think it's like this. I think I would have to ask a lot of questions where I am that positioning. From my own positioning. I think I don't know how you make that funny. I'm just telling you, like, I don't know how you make that funny. I know how I could do it at Law & Order SVU, which is a serious show, right? So I know how to, like, kind of walk into a situation, have Ice-T sort of, you know, at the center maybe of this conversation and have him stop someone or have a conversation among the cops themselves about it. You know, have that kind of happen. I mean, I off the top of my head, I can think of a lot of different ways to address it. Yes, Leslie, I think it can be done. I don't know where the funny is. Now, but again, I got fired from Bernie Mac, so maybe I just never know where the funny is. But I think that I don't know where the funny is. Like, I don't know how you make that funny. And I think that one of the things that we saw with Blackish is that uh, Kenny would go straight at themes. He would go straight at things that were happening. And if you remember, he made this great episode and ABC wouldn't air it because it was too controversial. And now they've aired it because they're like, oh, 
our bad, but the censorship of the episode was the problem in the first place, right? Yeah. Yeah. He was trying on broadcast, as you say, in a broad way to try to educate folks. But that takes time and intensity. And it was only after years of proving that he could bring the funny that that was actually a thing that he could really do. Right. So, and, and ABC technically still hasn't aired it. It's only on Hulu. So, Correct. Correct. Okay. So this is my point, though, right? So really, I think it can be attacked. I think it's a great question. I think it can be attacked, but the problem is turnaround, right? The problem is turnaround. How fast can you get it on the air, too? When does it air? When does it shoot? Which in this and climate, good luck. COVID has changed everything. It has changed <sighs> shooting. I, I actually don't know how. I mean, we'll find a new normal. My shrink says there's always a new normal available. You will come to find a new normal. And so I think that we will find a new normal as an industry, We'll find a new normal. We'll figure out a new way to do this. Tyler Perry figured it out, but he just couldn't let people leave. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the campus. <laughs> that's what happens when you own a campus for production. Yeah. Right. But this is the thing. Tyler doesn't have more money than these networks. If people wanted to make a campuses, they could do that. That could be done. If people wanted to try to change the business model, it could be done. They just haven't done it yet. But yeah, that's a great question. I hope people start to address it on broadcast. I think FBI, that Dick Wolf show, I think they could get at it. They do some kind of risky stuff over there. Will you cut your teeth largely in broadcast? Is there anything you miss about the reach of that world that you obviously just can't have on premium cable? Okay, I'm going to say this. I'm going to get really close to the camera. I'm dying to have a broadcast show. I'm literally dying to have a broadcast show. I want to do... I want to do like um, a legal show so badly right now. I really do. I miss the L.A. laws from when we were growing up, the practice. I, I miss law and order in the 90s when it was just like issue, 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 issue. Remember, every episode was like abortion, gun rights, boom, boom. You know what I mean? It was like they were just coming at it. You guys, I'm dying, dying, dying. That was me in the microphone. I am dying to get on broadcast with a legal show that can attack these issues. Yes, sir, ma'am, everyone, non-binary, everything. Yes, yes. But the pace is so punishing. The pace is so punishing. It's like, break it, write it, shoot it, break it, write it, shoot it. It's so hard. And I've been out of practice. I just don't have those hops anymore. You know what I mean? Like I left the NBA and now I play in like a sort of D league in Estonia and like, maybe I can get it up, but maybe I can't. Well, knowing that the kind of people who listen to our show, I think you you maybe just delivered a message to a lot of different people. So um, we'll, we'll break that story when you sell the show. Remember us and and, and call us on, and we'll, we'll, we'll circle back on it. Um, but if the leads are Leslie and Dan, you'll know. <laughs> <laughs> the character names. Dare to dream. I will take that. <laughs> I will take that. <laughs> well, uh, Courtney, we were running out of time here, but um, we always like to wrap with the same question. What have you been watching and loving? You know, what has been sparking your joy for you lately? Uh, the New Girl. I'm watching The New Girl from the beginning. I love that show. And it was so subversive. If you look at what she was doing back then, what Liz Merriweather was doing and Brett Baer and uh, Dave Finkel, like what they were doing with the with like race and stuff of gender. And like it was just it was it's still and it's still funny. I love the new girl. Uh, what else have I been watching? Um, I rewatch. I don't watch new new stuff while I'm trying to create because it gets in there. 
I watch Law and Order reruns with my mom. That's very soothing. And then I watch uh, Drag Race. I mean, I'm obsessed with Drag Race. I I'm watching the Canadian one now. Like I need, I need Drag Race content at all times. So I'm watching a lot of that. Well, Courtney, thank you so much for joining us. Power Book Two Ghost premieres September 6th on Stars. Thanks, you guys. This was super fun. Number five. As usual, we wrap things up with the Critics Corner. This week's new launches include Pure and TNT Import Raised by Wolves on HBO Max, Showtime's Love Fraud, and the return of former NBC comedy AP Bio over on Peacock. Dan, what you got? That is a wildly mixed bag of offerings. And and I'm I'm not sure which of those I, I need to tell people are must-watch, but I think several of them will find an audience. If you are, for example, a a fan of enigmatic, increasingly slow-moving science fiction, uh, raised by wolves on on HBO Max, maybe. The answer, I, I don't know. I think it will have some people interested in the first couple episodes that are directed by Ridley Scott. Uh, and they're definitely very pretty. The landscapes, uh, it was filmed with South Africa standing in for a mysterious planet some distance away. Uh, it looks terrific. The The story is initially interesting. Uh, two androids are raising young children who may represent the future of humanity or something. Uh, but as episodes went along, first of all, once Ridley Scott wasn't directing anymore and his pet cinematographer wasn't shooting it anymore, it becomes significantly less interesting looking. It begins to move much more slowly. There are two plot lines, one of which is really a bore, and it, it's just devoid of interesting characters or interesting performances. So I started off thinking that the first episode was at least visually intriguing and perhaps intellectually so, and then just becoming less and less as I went along. Uh, so that's a little bit too bad. I thought that Pure, which is a British acquisition uh, from Kirsty Swan, is, is very interesting. It is about a young woman whose OCD takes the form of unwanted and increasingly disturbing sexual thoughts. And it is graphic and weird and funny in a very cringy way. Uh, the lead actress, uh, Charlie Clive, is is very good. And there were things about it that I thought were interesting. I only watched about half of the first season, but I will probably stick with that one uh, going forward because it's it's interesting and it's it's not exactly like anything else on TV. If you saw AP Bio in its two seasons on NBC, it's a lot like that in its third season, which some people will think is very good. This is a show that, in addition to Glenn Howerton and Patton Oswalt and Paula Pell, just developed a really good ensemble of young actors. And the third season continues to make pretty good use of a lot of them, and it's a show that I really always wish was more laugh out loud funny than it is, but it's still amusing. So maybe that will get some people 
curious about Peacock and probably Love Fraud is actually the best of the things coming out in the next few days. It's a a documentary that premieres on Showtime this weekend. It launched at Sundance back in January and it's uh it's a fact is stranger than fiction story of a group of women who discover that they've been romantically involved with the same man and that he's a con artist and it's a little bit like Dirty John except for how intriguingly low rent it is. The guy is not a a handsome drifter con artist. He's a bit of a schlub who somehow is conning these women who also are not like the Connie Britton character in Dirty John, rich and, uh, you know, easy marks. It's it's a lot of what are people getting out of this? What is the fraud? What is being taken from people what are people getting out of it? There are a lot of very interesting questions, and it's it, it keeps twisting the story in interesting ways. It's a four-episode documentary series. The first episode premieres on Sunday. It probably didn't need to be four episodes, but it's it's interesting. I, I think a lot of people will be intrigued by it, and I think certainly if it were on Netflix and it were premiering as four episodes on Friday, it really actually would have people talking about it extensively. Showtime is having a little bit of trouble getting buzz around its documentary series, which is too bad because a lot of them have been really good. So Love Fraud premiering on Sunday. For more of Dan's weekly recommendations, be sure to subscribe to THR's Now See This newsletter. And before we wrap things up this week, we'd like to send positive vibes to a longtime friend of the five, Jan. Thank you then for listening to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. And if you like us, please spread the word and let The Hollywood Reporter know. As we've discussed on the show for some time now, the industry is changing every day, and we are also not immune from being unrenewed. You can subscribe to us on all of your various podcasting platforms if you like us. And, you know, we're, we're putting in a little request here. Just give us a little positive rating. And if you really like us, a little reviewy thing would always be helpful. We are always happy to chat with you guys on Twitter. We enjoy the questions, comments, and concerns. And as Leslie already said once on this podcast, if you have questions for future mailbag segments, that's TV's Top 5 at THR.com. That's TV's Top 5, the number 5, at THR.com. Until next week, Leslie. For now, until next week, Dan. Dan.